Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Between 1956 and 1980, 53 African countries gained their independence. By that point, however, the cradle of civilization had already been plundered of its natural resources and millions of its people. Colonial powers felt a sense of entitlement over Africa. They called it the white man's burden, the belief that Africans were too primitive to govern themselves and needed white leadership and guidance. Of course, this was simply an excuse to exploit the continent any way they could. When this position became untenable, the European powers all but abandoned Africa with little forethought concerning the transition of power across a continent with brand new governments and newly established borders. Not to mention a history and culture that had been completely upended by foreign interference. Before colonialism, most of Africa was divided into tribal societies. Then, all of a sudden, new democratic nations were expected to flourish. Democracy among tribes, some of whom, for perhaps a thousand years, had been enemies. In the past six episodes, we saw what happened in Korea when their Japanese colonizers left. In both the North and the South, a brief period of hope gave way to strong men who consolidated power at the cost of their own citizens. Not surprisingly, the same thing happened in Africa. The foreign tyrants were replaced by domestic tyrants, dictators who didn't care about rebuilding their countries or securing the rights of their citizens. Instead, they would continue the same system of exploitation, violence, and chaos. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. In the previous six episodes, we explored the Kim Dynasty in North Korea. Now we're moving on to Africa in the reigns of Idi Amin in Uganda, Jean Bedel Bokassa in Central Africa, and Francisco Macias Nguema in Equatorial Guinea. All three men came to power in an age when colonialism was slowly fading throughout Africa. All three filled power vacuums during shifting political chaos. And some may argue that all three proved to be more sadistic, brutal, and nefarious than the colonial powers they replaced. Today, we'll begin with Idi Amin, the Butcher of Uganda. Throughout the majority of the 1970s, Amin ruled Uganda with brutality and hostility. Though we will never know the death count to his name, one estimation charges that half a million died during his reign. This week, we'll focus on Amin's rise from a poor cook in the King's African Rifles of the British Colonial Army to perhaps one of the most brutal of all modern dictators. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Idi Amin, who ruled Uganda from 1971 to 1979, may be one of the most well-known Africans in history besides Nelson Mandela. But unlike Mandela, who would eventually be admired all over the world, Idi Amin was viewed as a caricature, a madman, a primitive barbarian, the kind of African leader that had he not existed, the West would have invented. These images of Amin were rooted in the racist, paternalistic view that many white people held of Africa and its people, a perception that largely persists today. But Amin was keenly aware of how people saw him, and he played into every single stereotype. The crazier he acted, some suggested, the more people focused on his erratic behavior. And the more they fixated on his behavior, the less they paid attention to his total incompetence as a leader and the murders of hundreds of thousands of Ugandans. Amin's supposed morals and principles were so skewed, it can be hard to distinguish them at all. What he cared most about was amassing wealth and power. In that respect, he wasn't much different than other strongmen who ruled African countries after independence throughout the 20th century all of whom personify the evils of colonialism and how it doomed Africa for decades, if not centuries, to come. The United States, Britain, and many other countries pilfered the continent not only of its natural resources, but kidnapped its people and forced them into slavery. Once they could no longer do so, they left most countries in the hands of massively corrupt tyrants who stole and murdered with impunity and drove their people into inescapable poverty. But of all the evil African leaders in modern history, one could argue that none was more violent, depraved, or infamous than Idi Amin. Among the various reports, it has been said that Idi Amin was born sometime between 1925 and 1928 into a Kakwa ethnic tribe located in the West Nile district of northwestern Uganda, near where the borders of Congo and Sudan met. Like many Kakwa peoples, Amin was raised as a Muslim. There are accounts that his mother was a witch doctor who instilled in him a belief in superstitions and the macabre traditions passed down through generations. Traditions like cannibalism, which Amin would admit to indulging in at the height of his power to the horror of the Western world at large. After Amin's father abandoned the family when Amin was a small boy, Amin's mother briefly sent him to an Islamic religious school. Amin was a precocious student who excelled at memorizing long portions of the Quran. But after receiving an education equivalent to that of an English-language fourth grader, he found it necessary to drop out and take a series of odd jobs to support himself and his mother. However, his meager income was hardly enough to overcome the systemic poverty that existed under British rule. Britain declared Uganda a protectorate in 1894 when the region's main kingdom was known as Buganda and used for its fertile soil to grow cash crops, especially cotton, coffee, and sugar. 
However, after negotiations with the local Bugandans, the British permitted the chiefs of Buganda to hold on to a small amount of independence. They were allowed to keep half the land in Buganda for their own uses, maintain the royal line of traditional kings, and preserve some semblance of self-governance. The land given to the British crown turned out to be unproductive swamp and brush. Despite the small victories of the Bugandans, the colonists found ways to exert their control. The British imposed taxes on many aspects of local life and ultimately ensured that any ongoing alliance benefited the United Kingdom above all else. Any native Ugandans who participated in the government were relegated to menial, low-wage jobs, while the British occupied the middle and upper classes. As a result, most Ugandans resented or outright despised the British. Not Amin. Rather than harboring only ill will against the British, he expressed a level of admiration for them, especially the military officers. He respected their dignity, bearing, and impeccable uniforms, and dreamed of one day ascending the ranks of the colonial army. For Amin, the army represented a genuine opportunity for advancement and an escape from destitution. Possibly his only opportunity. For a young man who grew up exceedingly poor and was forced to drop out of school, status and wealth must have been at the top of his mind. As a teenager, Amin grew into a hulking, confident young man. Allegedly, his mere presence so impressed a British officer that in 1946, when he was around 20, he was conscripted into a division of the British colonial army called the King's African Rifles. But Amin was forced to start on the bottom rung of the ladder as a member of the kitchen staff. Amin remained in this role for a brief period of time. But after proving himself to be a serious and diligent worker, just as the stories said he had been at school, he was promoted to a combat role. Amin was, by all accounts, an ideal soldier. He was smart, athletic, and did exactly as he was told. Even as a private, Amin's focus and ambition distinguished him from his fellow soldiers. So did his massive size. By his early 20s, Amin stood six foot four and weighed 240 pounds. In addition to being an exceptional soldier, he was also an accomplished swimmer and boxer. In fact, he was the reigning light heavyweight boxing champion of Uganda for nearly a decade. Outside the boxing ring, Amin's first major military accomplishment occurred in 1952 when he fought alongside the British colonial army during the Mau Mau uprising in neighboring Kenya. The Mau Mau rebels were fighting for independence from Britain, and in their view, forces such as the King's African Rifles represented the colonial arm of oppression. Rather than sympathize with the rebels, Amin distinguished himself by killing more of them than any other soldier in his unit. In previous episodes, particularly with Joseph Stalin and Kim Il-sung, we discussed how the dictators started their careers as idealistic freedom fighters, at least in their youth, doing battle in one form or another against a system or government that they perceived as corrupt or oppressive. Idi Amin was different. Amin embraced the country that was subjugating his own people because he saw doing so as an escape from poverty. Instead of changing the system to better his community, 
he welcomed it. From the day he was born, his ideology seems to have involved him and only him. He would get ahead no matter what it took. In this case, it meant killing fellow Africans to impress their British oppressors, his bosses. Throughout the 1950s, Amin ascended the ranks within the army. He was exceedingly popular and well-liked and cultivated friendships and alliances that would become invaluable during his time in power. In 1961, he received another promotion, becoming one of two Ugandan lieutenants in the entire armed forces at the time. He was also given a new assignment, to end the rampant cattle raiding between Uganda's Karamojong and Kenya's Turkana nomads. While he was known for showing no mercy to his enemies, his treatment of the cattle rustlers was one of the early examples of his sadism. Amin warned that any man caught stealing cattle would have his penis cut off. Few people believed he would actually carry out such a threat for such a seemingly minor crime. But as they learned, it was a mistake not to take Amin at his word. For those cattle rustlers he managed to apprehend, not only did Amin sever their penises, but he also buried some alive. Around this time, the Mau Mau Rebellion had drawn to a close, and it was becoming more certain that the Kenyans would achieve independence. As a result, the British Empire appeared to be weakening within the continent and around the world. Rather than risk another costly defeat, they began ceding control of their African colonies. In Uganda, this occurred in 1962, when the British recognized Milton Obote as the country's new leader. However, within a few years of his reign, Obote had fallen from the good graces of the British after embracing a communist ideology. The British held a lot more trust in Idi Amin, who had become one of Obote's top generals. Amin had built up a loyal following among Ugandan troops, particularly those belonging to his ancestral northern tribes, which are collectively known as Nubians. Amin's position in the military gave him access to money for the first time in his life. And in no time at all, Amin began using the military defense budget as his personal piggy bank. The day he opened his first checking account, he went on a shopping spree with the reckless abandon of a teenage girl with a Hot Topic gift certificate. He bought several suits, a case of liquor, and despite not having a driver's license, a new car. The corruption was only just beginning. By the mid-1960s, Amin's behavior had become increasingly violent and unpredictable. But because he was so popular in military circles, Obote knew he needed him as an ally. Because of that, any serious crimes committed by Amin went almost entirely unpunished. Just before independence, Amin had been investigated for the murder of 14 rebel dissidents. Obote personally dropped the charges. In 1965, Amin was involved in a deal to smuggle ivory and gold into Uganda in exchange for supplying arms to Congolese rebels. The Ugandan parliament, the only government body in the country that wasn't corrupt, demanded an investigation. However, Obote was also implicated in the deal. So instead of investigating, he suspended the country's constitution and gave himself even more power. 
Unsurprisingly, the lack of consequences only emboldened Amin. In 1966, Obote discovered that Amin had embezzled nearly 20,000 British pounds from government funds, the equivalent of roughly $375,000 in today's money. Rather than punish Amin, Obote gave him another promotion to Major General of the Ugandan Army. But over the next few years, things would grow tense between the two. Amin's popularity, especially within the military, began to eclipse Obote's. Meanwhile, Obote's communist-inspired economic policies had done little to improve the lives of ordinary Ugandans. The final straw came in 1970, when Amin was implicated in the murder of a rival army officer and his wife. By this point, Obote's patience with Amin had run out. Amin knew it was only a matter of time before Obote turned his back on him. For over five years, he had gotten away with murder and theft. His luck was bound to run out soon. But instead of fleeing the country or lawyering up, Amin had a much more audacious idea. He would stage a coup and take over Uganda himself. When we return, Idi Amin becomes president of Uganda. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. After embezzling as much money as he possibly could and sadistically murdering all of his enemies, Idi Amin, who at this point was about 45 years old, knew he didn't have long before the president removed him or threw him in jail. So he did the only sensible thing and organized a coup. Taking Amin's reputation into account, it's surprising that the coup wasn't an orgy of torture and violence. In fact, it was the opposite. In January 1971, President Obote was called away from Uganda to attend a conference in Singapore. That's when Amin made his move, initiating a nearly bloodless coup with the help of loyal soldiers and commanders. On January 25th, troops sealed off Entebbe International Airport so Obote couldn't fly home. Others marched through the capital city of Kampala, proclaiming the takeover. Meanwhile, a radio broadcast was made heralding Idi Amin as the new leader of Uganda. It emphasized that Amin only planned to lead until after free and fair elections were held and a new leader was chosen. Throughout Uganda, crowds celebrated the announcement. By this point, Obote's popularity had fallen dramatically. Much of Uganda was still living in poverty, and many felt that he favored some regions over others. With Amin in charge, people believed that things would finally improve. They were sorely mistaken. Amin's magnanimous pledge to create a democratic Uganda lasted less than a week, at which point he realized he was in a unique position to obtain what he'd always wanted, money and power. 
It's impossible to say whether he ever actually intended to hold elections, but considering his shameless narcissism, it's highly unlikely. In February 1971, one week after the coup, Amin proclaimed himself president of Uganda, commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and the leader of multiple other governmental organizations. For every other senior position, he appointed his own loyal troops, specifically Nubians, a people consisting of the northern tribes of his parents. Almost all of these men lacked any experience whatsoever in their new roles. He also did away with the country's provisional constitution and began ruling by decree, meaning that if he had an idea for a policy he wanted to enact, it soon became the law. Amin also disbanded the General Service Unit, an intelligence agency created under Abote, and established in its place the State Research Bureau. This bureau had nothing whatsoever to do with research and functioned more like a secret police organization. Amin would use the State Research Bureau to purge his enemies and torture and kill any perceived dissenters. Abote, meanwhile, fled to Tanzania. A year later, he would organize an unsuccessful coup against Amin. This resulted in the purges and murders of Abote's supporters, real or imagined, from within the Ugandan military and government. But Amin didn't stop there. He began killing anyone he deemed a threat to his power and authority. Within a year, Amin had killed or disappeared nearly 20,000 people. These included everyone from religious leaders and members of certain ethnic groups to journalists and intellectuals. And while the murders themselves were almost arbitrary, the disposal of bodies was not. Amin and his goons dumped thousands of bodies into the rivers of Uganda, where they were eaten by crocodiles. According to one journalist, his rule became so synonymous with killing that when the capital's lights went dark, the outages were rumored to be the result of corpses discarded in its waterways blocking the hydropower plant. Although Amin was completely unqualified to lead a country, he had an extraordinary understanding of the media, which gave the impression that he was competent. If a reporter or TV crew was present, everything he did was for effect. Everywhere he went in Uganda, he gave long-winded speeches to large crowds extolling his virtues as one of them and a man of the people. He wore a military uniform replete with badges for fabricated accomplishments and rankings, and virtually every claim he made about his achievements as leader was a lie. No matter how obvious it might seem that he was a fraud and a charlatan, he was immensely popular, especially among the poor and uneducated who truly believed that he held their best interests at heart. This grift even extended outside the borders of Uganda. Normally, Western powers would have been alarmed by a murderous demagogue destroying his own country. But to the rest of the world, Amin's rise was at first a curiosity. In the beginning, few people knew how dire the situation in Uganda actually was. Many more were amused about the new African strongman who began appearing on television with increasing frequency. 
The British entered their relationship with the self-declared president of Uganda with a particularly ironic and morbid fascination. Amin embodied every quality that the average Brit did not. Whereas most Brits were reserved, cynical, and quiet, Amin was brash, loud, and vulgar. To them, he was more or less a clown. But he was one who reinforced the idea that Africa was a primitive, uncivilized place that they had been right to abandon. And although Amin was dangerous and unpredictable, he did possess a sense of humor. This was another thing that endeared him to the British. The only problem was the British completely misunderstood him. They thought Amin was only pretending to be a lunatic and were unaware of just how evil he actually was. During his rise to power, the British had taken Amin for a fool and an ally at their own peril. For all his bluster and pandering, Amin was keenly aware of how he was perceived in the West. After all, this was the same man who'd spent his formative years around British gentlemen in the army. While Amin may have lacked any sort of formal education, he was keenly perceptive and cognizant of other people's attitudes and behavior. And by cultivating a completely outlandish personality, he was indulging all of their stereotypes and lulling them into a false sense of superiority. He knew that by playing the role of a crazy, barbaric African strongman, Western countries may never take him seriously enough to believe that he could commit human rights abuses on a large scale, let alone intervene to stop them. Between his bizarre personality, constant flattery, and the fact that the British government already preferred Amin to the communist Obote, the two sides actually, for a very short time, forged diplomatic ties. In 1971, Amin visited the UK. By surprise, he simply got into his private plane and flew to London. Apparently, Queen Elizabeth was too polite to turn him away and invited him to lunch at Buckingham Palace. When the Queen asked Amin, Mr. President, to what do we owe the honor of your visit? He replied, In Uganda, Your Majesty, it is very difficult to buy size 14 black shoes. The true purpose of his visit, however, was to solicit the British government for money and weapons, anything that would allow him to continue his reign of terror. But while the Queen was polite enough to share a meal with Amin, she and the British government refused to be complicit in his atrocities and turned him down flat. Upon returning to Uganda, Amin vowed revenge upon the British any way he could and he wouldn't have to wait long for his chance. When the British economy experienced a minor recession in 1971, Amin trolled them by starting a Save the British Fund and sending fruits and vegetables to London. Although this may have been a simple, mean-spirited joke, there was nothing remotely funny about what Amin did next. In August 1972, Amin ordered the expulsion of approximately 60,000 South Asians from the country. He gave them a matter of days to collect their things and leave the country. Once they did, their homes and businesses were appropriated and distributed to native Ugandans. An estimated 30,000 of these Ugandan Asians held British passports and soon arrived in the UK seeking asylum. 
Amin claimed the order was a result of divine intervention. God instructed him to do it in a dream. The lie and the proclamation itself was popular among Ugandans. But like many of Amin's decisions, it was capricious and totally misguided. Much as he'd done with the military and government, Amin handed the British-owned businesses over to his Ugandan supporters, many of whom had no experience running them. And while not all of the businesses failed entirely, the economy suffered drastically. So bad was the economic spiral that for years, Ugandans couldn't procure even the most basic necessities like butter, sugar, or salt. Amin took the already impoverished country and made it worse. And the effects are still felt to this day. The economic war forced the entire international community to turn its back on Idi Amin, including Israel, which refused to sell arms to Amin for a planned invasion of Tanzania. In response, Amin ejected all Israeli diplomats and military advisors from Uganda. This was only months after terrorists belonging to a militant Palestinian group called Black September murdered 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team at the Munich Olympics. Not only did Amin publicly praise the perpetrators of the attack, he also sent a message to United Nations Secretary General Kurt Waldheim and Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir, stating, Germany is the right place where when Hitler was the prime minister and supreme commander, he burned over six million Jews. This is because Hitler and all German people knew that Israelis are not people who are working in the interest of the people of the world. And that is why they burned the Israelis alive with gas in the soil of Germany. These words would eventually come back to haunt Amin. By now, Amin had assumed the persona of a full-fledged reactionary. It had taken a few years, but he'd managed to alienate the Western countries that had incorrectly viewed him as a harmless buffoon. With nowhere left to turn, he sought assistance from the Soviet Union and Libya, both of whom were happy to oblige. In an especially calculated move to win over Libyan President Muammar Gaddafi, Amin began to play up his Muslim faith. Though he hardly became devout, he still drank, smoked, and had extramarital affairs. By 1973, Amin's behavior on the international stage was becoming increasingly unpredictable. What had once seemed like harmless, almost comical media appearances now took on a menacing and somber tone. But what Western powers saw on TV was nothing compared to his unhinged behavior at home. When we return, we'll explore the depths of Idi Amin's depravity against his own people and the bizarre stories that sealed his infamy. Now back to the story. By the end of 1972, Amin had alienated every Western country and was relegated to diplomatic relationships with the Soviet Union and Libya. Both had the resources and equipment to provide Amin with virtually everything he wanted. But what Amin wanted was to consolidate even more power. He'd already purged anyone he felt was loyal to ex-president Milton Obote and almost everyone who wasn't a native Ugandan. 
So he began finding increasingly sick and personal reasons to kill his enemies. Using the State Research Bureau as his personal death squad, Amin began murdering Ugandans almost at random. If there was a woman he found attractive, he would kill her husband or boyfriend. If there was a religious leader he deemed a threat to his power, they would find themselves with a bullet to the back of their head. Archbishop Janani Lewum, the head of the Church of Uganda, wrote a letter to Amin admonishing him for the killings. Soon after, he was arrested and murdered, though Amin publicly stated that he died in a car accident. By this time, Amin had introduced public executions. Whether it was a petty criminal or a political enemy, Amin might have them arrested and shot by firing squad on a public street. He often broadcast these killings on television. Afterwards, the bodies were often fed to the crocodiles. While the crocodiles were well-fed, the citizens of Uganda were anything but. Having mismanaged the economy into oblivion, Amin tried to appropriate that one industry in Uganda that had seemingly evaded his incompetence, coffee. Amin forced coffee growers to give him their beans so that he could export them himself and collect the profits. In return, he gave them worthless promissory notes, which he assured them could be redeemed the following year. Many coffee growers defied the order, and a massive black market emerged. Rather than turn over their valuable crop, many would sail across the corpse-ridden Nile River into neighboring countries and sell the beans themselves. Despite his complete and total incompetence in overseeing the Ugandan economy, Amin spent what little money the country did have on himself. He had several homes and villas and had plane loads of liquor flown in from London once a month. But that was nothing compared to the astronomical sum he spent on his fifth wedding. And the suspicious death of one of his wives, Kay Adroa. Though he could make anyone do virtually anything he wanted, many women actually chose to marry or sleep with Idi Amin. He was good-looking and affable, and by all accounts, his swinging ways began when he was a young man in the army. During this time, he likely contracted syphilis on multiple occasions. Though he was supposedly cured, many people suggested that the behavior he would exhibit later in life was a result of the syphilis rotting his brain. In 1975, a presumably syphilis-free 50-year-old Idi Amin met 19-year-old Sarah Choloba, who inexplicably worked as a go-go dancer in the Ugandan army's marching band. The band went by the undeniably cool name of the Revolutionary Suicide Mechanized Regiment Band, and Sarah was nicknamed Suicide Sarah. Despite Sarah being pregnant with another man's child, Amin married her and took the child as his own. What became of her boyfriend is unknown, although it's speculated that he was beheaded. To celebrate their nuptials, Amin staged a two million pound wedding, the equivalent of around 20 million US dollars today. The future president of Palestine, Yasser Arafat, was his best man. The wedding was a culmination of Idi Amin's greatest passions, women, entertainment, and spending obscene amounts of money. His other passion, 
was the accordion. While the 1970s may have been the apex of rock music, there probably wasn't a copy of the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street anywhere near Idi Amin's turntable. Instead, he was happy to serenade his guests for hours at a time with his accordion. In fact, Amin would throw parties, lock all the doors, then force his guests to dance to his accordion playing until the wee hours of the morning. By that time, their nerves and shoes were torn and frayed. Amin would also find ways to torment his guests and advisors outside of a party setting. He'd kept several British advisors in Uganda, although it's unclear if they were there against their will. Either way, whenever Amin appeared with them in public or on TV, he would mercilessly berate them, presumably to humiliate the British government by proxy. Additionally, he would force them to carry him around on a sedan chair. No easy feat considering Amin's size and girth. This sociopathic behavior represented the peak of Amin's eccentricities and cruelty. He'd gone from playing a madman to becoming one. From here, there was nowhere else to go but down. By 1976, Idi Amin held on to Uganda with an iron grip with the cadre of questionable allies in the Soviet Union and Libya. With the administration that he had created, he should have been in power for decades, instilling fear in the hearts of anyone who even considered overthrowing him. Instead, he would soon commit an act so baffling and atrocious, it would threaten to sink his regime entirely. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the raid on Entebbe, Amin's first defeat on the international stage, and how it set the course for his eventual downfall. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>